Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. In today's episode, we tackle the Senate and whether it is time to scrap it. Why do we have a Senate? What role does it play in our politics? How does today's Senate measure up? Is it the source of our problems? And if so, what can we do about it? These are some of the questions that we are going to tackle in today's episode. I'm James Walner, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute and lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Julianne Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and a regular contributor at the independent political science blog, Mischiefs of Faction. And I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a Senior Fellow at New America. Well, it's great to see you guys. Welcome back. Yeah. Have a good summer. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good, good yeah. summer. Yeah. Spend yeah. a lot of time worrying about the Senate. Uh, I spend a lot of time worrying about a lot of things. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about the Senate and whether or not it's time to get rid of it. So, I mean, why don't we just start off? Should we abolish the Senate? Should we get rid of it? Should we scrap it? What do you say? What yeah. say you, Lee? Yeah, let's do it. Why not? I mean, you know, as long as we're we're thinking about what might be. I mean, th- th- there's a whole problem with the, the Constitution and everything. But yeah, I mean, if we didn't have a Constitution or we were, we were just rewriting it from scratch, I would say... What do we need a Senate for? Julia? Uh, So I would, right, I'm with Lee in that if I were creating a government for the country we have now, a Senate structure like the one we have would would not be on my list. I have, I think, kind of a proposed reform for the Senate that's, that is tantamount to scrapping it. So that's where, that's where I'm. Ooh, I can't wait for this one. Yeah, well, I, should we hear it out or should we? Should we tease it out? Should we tease it out just a little bit? Okay, sure. So basically, the the logic of the thing is that the Senate represents states as states, right? And so, fine, that's great. There's people still have identities and political interests tied up in their states. But how about we add the top fifty biggest cities, and the top fifty biggest cities, each one gets a senator or two. What are the top? And are we talking metropolitan areas? So you right, you have to make these decisions. Are we talking metro area? Are we talking just the city? Like those are political decisions. I, I don't have strong priors necessarily about those, but I just think cities are important political entities that if we're going to think about localities as getting some kind of representation, that's that's not not valid. Um, but it it should happen now. We have a lot of people living in cities, and people the people who live in cities are in many ways demographically and ideologically distinct from people who live in in rural areas, so why not give them some kind of you know scheduled representation also? Yeah, I think that's interesting. We're jumping ahead just a little bit here, but if you're from South Georgia, my sense is you would think that Atlanta probably dictates what the senators in Georgia think and do anyway already, but that's uh, um, given the disparity between the uh, Atlanta metro area and, say, South Georgia in terms of population. But um, but yeah, well, let's yeah, let's take a step back. Right. But I, I think this is interesting. Let's, I like thinking like this and outside the box. Uh, my own view, as much as I uh, give the Senate a hard time, is that we should not abolish it. But um, it's certainly true that people don't like it. I think that's true. It isn't a very popular institution. When I worked in the Senate years ago, one of the things that senators used to say on the floor, they would give these speeches and they would say things like, this Senate's less popular than cockroaches. Right. Or communism. <laughs> I use that in class. Yeah. It, it, it's Congress in general. It, it also rates below nail fungus, I believe. Oh, well, you know. My students love really? that. Really? Who likes nail fungus? I mean, it's the circle of life, Lee. I'm sure there's a reason. It's anonymous. We don't know no. who likes nail fungus. Just That's... the 7% of people do. The polling tells us. <laughs> yes, polling. Uh... 
So <laughs> that's another episode, guys. In getting to why we whether we should abolish the Senate, I think we need to consider why people don't like it. And to me, at least, it looks like calls to abolish the Senate in recent years have originated on the left. And my question is whether this is because liberals and Democrats see the Senate as an obstacle to getting their agenda through Congress. Is that the reason why you're seeing places like Jacob and Magazine or um, former Representative uh, John Dingell say, we should get rid of the Senate, let's scrap it? Yeah, I think so. But there's also something deeper, which is that the, the reason that Democrats and people on the left are frustrated with the Senate is because it is... Uh, operating as an anti-majoritarian institution in the sense that that the the senators who are sitting now who who are republicans represent a minority of voters and yet they control a majority of seats and that seems fundamentally unfair and you're speaking nationwide right you're yes. saying a minority of voters nationwide that's right right absolutely and so but let's unpack this uh, the malapportionment argument just a little bit more so it rests it seems to me on the idea that Senators represent unequal constituencies, right? Right. So if you're from California, you've got a lot of, I don't know how many people are in California, probably as many as served in the House of Representatives. There are a lot of people there. It's like 35 million. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. when so I go, when I would leave the Senate up. and go to the House, it seems like there was 35 million people mulling about. <laughs> um, well, they have what, 50, 50, 50 representatives about? Uh, 55, I think. 55. Yeah. Something like that. 55 but electoral votes. So you have two senators from California and you have two senators from Wyoming, right? With the one, same one representation seven. inside the Senate for both states. One seventieth of the population. Right. And so the argument is that small rural states use the Senate to shape policy to their liking. Right? This yeah. is, you know, Francis Lee and Bruce Oppenheimer. Well, I think that's that, that was the old critique of the Senate. I think the new critique of the Senate is that as we've sorted parties along geographical lines, that the party that is overrepresented in rural America right now is the Republican Party, and they get a real boost from the Senate. And the party that is overconcentrated in in big states and, and cities, the Democrats have a disadvantage given, given the malapportionment of the Senate. I want to complicate the partisan picture for just a second. Oh, are we complicating things? We're going to complicate things. All right, stay um, tuned. Things I are going to get even more complicated. Social science PhD is going to get revoked yeah. if I, right. I, I should be making these more simple and more. Well, we, um, well, we complicate first and then we simplify. So stay, stay, stay tuned. Right. Well, so the thing I keep thinking sense. about, I keep thinking about some of the work that's been done on, on minority rule in the last couple of years, um, given, given the situation in American government right now. Um, we have a, a president who lost the popular vote. We have this, this issue in the Senate. Um, I think we talked about this a little when we talked about our electoral college episode, which you should all listen to. Um, but, okay, so thinking back, like there's this more typical partisan story, which is that populated areas tend to be democratic. They're disadvantaged by the Senate, underpopulated, less populated areas, Republican, more advantaged by the Senate. And so like during the Obama years, this was a very clear narrative. The Senate is obstructionist and keeps things from getting done. Um, with with Republicans controlling more of government, that's like that narrative is more complicated. Right. And so one of the arguments, I think one of the concerns, particularly from commentators on the left um, in the early Trump years was we now have a pretty much minoritarian government. They're going to not not be 
not be inactively minoritarian, right? Not be obstructionist and obstruct the will of the majority, but actually actively enact policies opposed by most Americans. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times, I think, wrote you know one of the most cogent pieces about this. Um, and actually, when we saw some of that come to fruition in the legislative arena in, um, in 2017 with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, it was the rules of the Senate that ultimately prevented that from happening just by a hair with John McCain's vote in the middle of the night, if we remember back to July of 2017. So it was kind of... It was actually the um, the way that the Senate works, not the apportionment, but the um, what is the word I'm looking for? But the procedure that right. So it allowed that to happen. When Republicans went uh, tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they used a special procedure known as reconciliation, mm-hmm. which is a budget procedure designed to change uh, revenue and spending levels in law that has already been enacted, and that the rules associated with reconciliation limit what you can do with it, mm-hmm. right? And so right. the argument is Republicans could only repeal so much of the Affordable Care Act, thereby complicating the effort and making it harder for them to do so. Whereas if they didn't have those rules, it would have been a lot easier. I think there's that, that is par- partially correct in my view, but it also, and I think this gets kind of further afield, I don't want to kind of go down this rabbit hole too much right now, but the Senate rules are also majoritarian in nature, right? I mean, the majority does set the rules. Sure. Um, but with regard to parties, I mean, Francis Lee and Bruce Oppenheimer wrote a, a fabulous book called Sizing Up the Senate, I believe is the name of it, where they kind of make this point, right? The, the malapportionment has a policy consequence. Because small states are overrepresented, if you will, or rural populations in the Senate, they are able to shape policy outcomes that they otherwise would not be able to. Then if, Lee, if you're correct, we have sorting of the electorate and the parties are now aligned along kind of small state, large state, or rural urban areas, that then may take on a partisan dimension. So it makes it, it kind of fuels the the cause to get rid of the Senate. And so the result is that I think detractors at least, like Lee and Julia here would argue that we have a minority rule institution at the heart of the federal government that either makes it impossible for Congress to work or changes in a significant way what Congress does when it does work. Right? Yeah, that's a. I want to I want to really put like some weight behind that distinction, though. Right. I think that from a kind of Democratic, small d Democratic theory perspective, there's a big difference between obstructing the will of the minority and or the majority and giving the giving minority voices the capacity to shape legislation that will eventually be passed. I mean those are not equivalent. That's an important point. So as we get into this, I don't think I think it's important to say that no one that I know defends how the Senate works today. And if you look at the House, which is a place where most people look at the Senate um, unfavorably to say the least, House Democrats don't like it today. They, they don't like the Senate. But House Republicans didn't like the Senate when the Democrats were in charge of it in 2011 to 2014. You have calls to change its rules, to eliminate the filibuster, even to abolish it entirely. They're an evergreen feature of our politics. In a peculiar sense, this frustration unites all Americans. Right? Dislike of the Senate transcends ideology and partisanship. But before we blow it up, let's put away the dynamite, Lee. Put it down. <laughs> let's think through this institution. I'm just, just going to put it on the table right. here. Why? You know, let's think through this institution. Let's not look at it just in terms of our kind of preferences in this moment. What, and, in this place. But like, what role does it play in the federal government? How has that role changed over time? 
And I think doing this will help us consider how today's Senate measures up and whether it's responsible for ruining America, as you and Lee, <laughs> Julia, apparently believe. Well, not not the Senate alone. Yeah, I think there's lots of causes behind that. Can I ask a substantive question? Um, I prefer non-substantive questions. But, well, me too, but I'm going to make an but exception. That, but, but they, <laughs> guys, I have to give you a substantive answer? It's a substantive podcast. Well, People want substance, so Well, please. so I, I don't know if either of you know this, but the, the intra... Um, the intracameral hostility. How how far back does that go? Because it seems to me like institutional partisanship is is older than like the current era where partisanship actually transcends institutions. Right. There was that like old sort of old old saying was it was it a Rayburn saying the 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 Republicans are the opponent, the Senate is the enemy. It goes yeah. it goes back even further. One of my favorite stories that in the first Congress they're debating how to the House and Senate how to communicate with one another, and the and the Senate ultimately decides that a House member will come and like bow three times in front of all the mm -hmm. senators and like say some you know over the top phrase and then back out like slowly without turning around or something, and then they would just send a staffer over to the House. <laughs> Needless to say. They don't do that. It's they. They just send staffers and clerks back and forth these days. But it's been around since the uh, yeah. since the very beginning. Right. So is it? Wor do you feel like it's worse now, or is it? Or has party partisanship made that made it less? I think. Uh, I think part. That's part not a partisan. Great phrase. <laughs> let's, let's call it partisanship. <laughs> yeah. Partisanship has has taken over everything, so that that the the. But all, all, all the yes, institutional loyalties have have been overwhelmed by partisan loyalties. Okay, thank you, Lee. That was I, th I think that's the case. I mean, in the in the Senate, eloquent. you you're going to have different perspectives. You may have a partisan loyalty, but your ability to act on behalf of that in your institution is going to differ um, from <laughs> the other institution, and so therefore you're going to adopt different views and uh, on what should be done. But the members do conceive of themselves as, as as members of a political party. And the political parties certainly communicate today, I think, to a greater degree than they probably did um, or have an easier time communicating than they did, say, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago. So why do we have a Senate? Good question. I mean, if we're going to get rid of it, we should know why we have it. Why yeah. do we have it? Uh, tradition. <laughs> the founding something states so, why don't you explain this, something James? articles of confederation help us, help us so please. as i see it there are four explanations for the senate uh, one is that the senate was created to represent society's elite right this is the charles beard this is this is like what, what, what the framers were up to correct okay. right they wanted to make sure that the the crazy uh, great unwashed masses the democracy if you will didn't didn't ruin everything. So this was this was like so Madison, right? He, I mean, he he came with this Virginia plan, and there were going to be two chambers, right? I mean, that was that was like always going to be the uh, that there was never never any point in the convention where there was going to be a, a unicameral legislature, right? Right. Bicameralism. It's interesting you you bring this up. It's one of the things that unified all the delegates. And if you look at the votes on on bicameralism in the convention. There was only one dissenting state, and that was uh, Pennsylvania, and it was generally considered um, 
to be due to deference to Ben Franklin and, and Pennsylvania's unicameral house at the time, which they in, very quickly after the ratification of the Constitution replaced with a bicameral assembly. Right. The only other unicameral assembly we had at the time was in Georgia, and they also uh, very quickly replaced with a bicameral assembly. But bicameralism, as I think George Mason said, maybe it was in the genius. It was in the, it was in the like it was something that everybody agreed to. Right. In what, America. What, what they didn't agree on what, was whether the, the states should get equal representation in the Senate or whether they should get proportional representation in the Senate. And the original Madison-Virginia plan had proportional representation in the Senate, but then a few of the smaller states threatened to walk. And Right. But I think to, make, to help us understand that, you have these explanations for why we have a Senate. One, uh, it represents the rich people. Right. Okay. Right? Two, it represents the states, right? The idea that you have to have a majority of states as expressed in the Senate and a majority of the population as expressed in the House. And that is a compromise between the small states and the large states, well, which we'll get to. This is the argument right, or the right, idea. All right, all right, all right. I think they have this a third argument, which is um, kind of one of the more recent ones. Daniel Worles and Stephen Worles have a fabulous book, The Invention of the United States Senate, where they argue that the Senate reflects the fact that the economic and political interests aligned with the framers' theoretical principles about how government ought to work. So the Senate was actually the key that brought all of this stuff together. It's still a compromise, but it's the key in allowing for this larger system to take shape around it. And then I think you have my view, which I'm going to just put on par with all these other ones here. Uh, the fourth explanation, which I, you know, I'd argue that these missed the point. I think the Senate was, you know, we make things too complicated too often. The Senate was created for one reason, to check the House. That's it. And this gets to the notion of bicameralism. And, the, and I argue that the Senate, create, the framers created a Senate whose institutional features are properly understood only in relation to the, to the body's House checking role. That's it. And that's where it begins and ends. And as we assess kind of how they did that, if you get rid of the Senate, I think you're basically pulling out this key feature of our uh, constitutional system. Yeah, I want to I want to add something to that, which is goes back to the there's an argument in the Federalist Papers about checking the president, right? And so it's it facilitates that checking. The argument is the well, the, well isn't it the president wasn't going to check the the legislature? I'm still talking, Lee. <laughs> um, what is the um. Right. Obviously, everybody's checking everybody. That's how yes. checks and balances work. But See, I was checking you and you were checking me. That's that's correct. Yes. So but specifically, right, the um, the Senate Congress has a, a check on the president or has a I don't know if I like the word check here, but we're going to move on in the sense of that appointments and so judicial appointments, appointments to the executive branch and and treaties go to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And there's there's an explanation in the Federalist Papers about how it's good that they go to the Senate because that's superior to the house that's got better people in it um and so it facilitates that exactly so it facilitates that checking right it allows it sort of allows a valve for that to happen i'm not necessarily totally buying everything about your argument but i but i do think that that's that's a critical constitutional logic to to follow for sure is is the logic of the structure of the institutions is shaped by this assumption of how they're going to check each other. Right. And the, and the other thing, of course, about the Senate is that senators were not directly elected. They were appointed by state legislatures, which, which, which gave some credence to the, to the elite theory. But if you look at, if you unpack all of the different features of the Senate at the time, I think it, it gets to this point 
And I think the, the, the confirmation process and the treaty ratification process are interesting arguments or things to consider if we do get rid of the Senate eventually in this country. But let's go back to bicameralism. The whole point, because the legislative power necessarily predominates, predominates according to the, the framers, according to the Federalists, because in Federalist 47, they say that the concentration of all power in any one set of hands is very problematic and is the very definition of tyranny, they have to have a bicameral Congress. I mean, if you remember, the, the Congress of the Confederation was unicameral, and they couldn't invest it with more powers because the people in the states were very worried about what it would do with those powers. So they have to figure out a way that's consistent with the Republican principle of self-government and representation to check this representative assembly. And so the key for the Constitution is bicameralism. If you don't have bicameralism, you can't create a stronger federal government at the time. And it's that's the very it's what unlocks, I think, all of this other stuff. And in order for bicameralism to work, everything flows from this one thing, in my opinion, in order for it to work, the Senate can't be dependent on the House. It can't be chosen by the same sort of electorate that chooses the House because then it will operate just like the House. Right. It can't it can in any way, shape or form be influenced by or dependent on the House of Representatives. Otherwise, it's not going to check him. Yeah, but I mean, that, that was the uh, that was that was the thinking in the 1780s. I mean, the reality is, is that by having a bicameral legislature in 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 current times, it's meant the legislature doesn't work very well and has left power to concentrate in the executive, which was not at all the intention. So if you want to have a legislative branch that actually is the first branch, you have to have a legislative branch that is able to act. Right. I was going to say get shit done, but I don't, uh, but the, you're so much more genteel than I, Lee. So well, no, I, no, but you're, you're more colorful. Right. I, I'm, I'm house all the way, right? Yeah. Uh, know, of the people. You do pretty, not want me weighing I mean, on a tree. Note, note that James Madison did not serve in the Senate. He served in the House. Well, he was actually defeated for election to the Senate by, I believe, Monroe uh, before he went to the House. So he tried to go to the Senate, I would point out. Yes. Well. So I want to I want to make a point that I'm not I'm not at all sure I'm going to be able to stick the landing here, but I'm going to try. All right, go um, for it. Which is that? So I I buy this logic that to understand the Constitution we have to think about about the um, inner branch and inner institution checking. That's you know that's really important logic of that institutional design. Um, but the other underlying logic of the Constitution, and, and particularly the structure of Congress, but also the Electoral College, is representation, right? Um, and so that's like that sort of there's sort of this dual logic behind checking, where on the one hand it's about you don't want you don't want the fetus of monarchy, you don't want a president who, as an individual, is too powerful, right? Um, but when you're talking about checking Congress, you're not actually talking about checking individual members of Congress. You're really talking about checking the impulses of their constituents, right? And particularly when, when if you, you know, reading the Federalist or reading the writings of the time about the House, that that's the, that's the branch that represents the right. people. And so it's important to have their voice at the table, but it's also important to keep that shit under control. Right. So am I saying shit too much? Um, <laughs> Lee is looking at me like... You're always saying shit too much. I mean, I mean, I can't, I can't, you know, I, I can't play this podcast for my kids now. So, whereas before they were gonna be totally into it. Where, where, where are your kids gonna learn this language, Lee? If not from me, I don't know. Can we, do, can we do some more unicorns? <laughs> okay, so, 
Um, I will try to substitute unicorn every time I want to swear. Um, but so that, but so like, so the logic of, of representation is really integrated into the logic of checking. And when we think about that now, representation, the problems of representation are not really about, like solely about geography. And they're not solely about um, the kinds of divisions that they were thinking about in the you know, at the founding, or I would say that the the public opinion that you're citing about why people don't like Congress is not about like there's too much riffraff, um, there's too many unicorns weighing in with their unicorny opinions about public policy. It's that I think what a lot of people would say is there's too many moneyed special interests, and that's who needs to be checked. the The point I'm getting at here is like the logic of checking is not a big part of our current political discourse, but actually maybe it should be because that's, there are, there are powerful interests that are running a lot of the show and they do need to be checked and the current institutional system doesn't do that. Right. And, and the other thing is, is that's my attempt to stick the landing with, with James is looking at me like I'm through full of unicorns. No, Uh, (laughs) well, I, I, is that the, the framers thought that they had built a system that was going to prevent parties from forming. So, by by decentralizing power and 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 to tie this back is now what we have is partisan loyalty is greater than institutional loyalty. So to the extent that there's any checking going on, it's Republicans checking Democrats, but that's and Democrats checking Republicans. Right. But in reality, that just creates gridlock right. in our system. Not meaningful. Yeah. That's good. Well, I think that to go back to our realignment episode. We, we're, we're making an awful lot of assumptions about what the parties are and what they're capable of, number one. I think number two, the question is, how did the framers think about it when they designed the system? That doesn't mean it can't be changed. Of course it can be changed, right? I mean, this is the, the great thing about America. But I think it behooves us to understand it. And I'm not sure they thought about it in terms of checking certain interests, per se. They certainly were very interest focused. I, I agree with that. Uh, and they and they were very well aware of the different interests in, in society and how those interests would manifest themselves. And they were themselves were representatives of different interests. Of course, yeah. But I think they had a kind of architectonic view of politics. What is certainly Madison, but but also others, I would I would I would put um, Hamilton, I would put Adams in this in this camp as well, but I think Madison was able to grasp it better than others. They wanted to create a space where all of these different interests could come together and kind of grapple with one another and check one another and ultimately engage in the act of self-government with one another. And to create that space, they had to figure out a way to prevent those interests in that time. And we mentioned this in the Electoral College episode. They had to figure out a way to prevent those interests from from basically overwhelming the structure and changing the structure to try to maintain a permanent kind of hold on it, if you will. And so that's where bicameralism and all of these other things come in. And checking becomes not a way to prevent somebody from having their say, but to ensure that someone else has their say, if that makes sense. So institutionally, the veto power is a legislative power. It's given to the president to ensure that the legislative branch doesn't intrude into the executive branch. Right. That's the whole notion. It's to protect the sphere of the executive branch. Um, and that's why I think that 
the we need to rethink how we approach these issues to try to place ourselves not necessarily in a, a kind of progress orientation of well we want to do x and we can't because the structure prohibits it but more of a of a kind of architectonic focus where this is about an activity and how do we ensure that that activity goes on and the framers certainly didn't get it all right and, and there's things that can always be made better but i think we have to start from that premise and then we can say okay how do we go in and change these institutions to make this union ever more perfect well the problem i mean the the things that although the framers and sort of left open the opportunity to, to change institutions broadly with the senate they they really stuck that one in and they made it really hard to change the senate yeah. Uh, and I think that speaks to its importance. I really do. Because without bicameralism, you don't have a stronger Congress. You really? don't have the power to tax. You don't have a stronger union. I think in many respects, bicameralism is what allows for the delegates all around to come around and ultimately support a stronger union. And look, it's not to make the small states happy. The small states immediately, representatives of the small states, once you secured the Senate, once the Senate was there and they had equal representation, so they knew that it would be distinct from the House. What do they do? They begin to support measures to strengthen the independence of senators from their state legislatures, which contradicts the notion that the Senate represents states qua states. You begin to see proposals for per capita voting as opposed to state voting, which is what they did at the Confederation Congress and in the, in the federal convention as well. You see the term length is lengthened. You have payment out of the federal treasury. You have all of these things that are designed to insulate the Senate from the state legislatures because they don't want the Senate to be dependent on the states. They well, want the Senate to be able to act as an independent check on the House. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with your history of the progressive era reforms that led to the 17th Amendment. That's what you're referring to there. Oh, right? no, I'm referring or, to the Federal Convention. You're, you're referring yeah. to the... Oh, oh, okay. Well, tell us about the 17th Amendment. Well, the 17th Amendment is when uh, it passes in 1913. It's when states... Uh, go from appointing their senators to having them directly elected. And that was largely a progressive era reform because a lot of progressives saw the whole process as, as being quite corrupting. But frankly, a lot of the senators wanted to be independent from the state legislature because they didn't want their fortunes tied to who which party controlled the state legislature. And a lot of the state legislatures were happy to not have their fortunes tied to to uh, whichever party voters wanted to send to Washington. So it was a, a happy divorce for everyone, I think. I, yes and no. I mean, I think there's a powerful case to be made, and Wendy Schiller and Charles Stewart, I think, do a good job making that, that the 17th Amendment really codifies a practice that had been ongoing for a while. And you see this in the 19th century, this idea of the canvas, where uh, senators begin to campaign with uh, or try to get certain state legislators elected. And they begin through that process to establish a relationship with the uh, with the people in their states. And they're certainly formally dependent on the state legislature. But you see prior to the 17th Amendment, the changes in behavior that we that you that we expect to see and did see after the 17th Amendment is ratified. So I, I'm not sure how much of an impact the ratification of the 17th Amendment had in that moment. I mean, sure, Nelson Aldrich, you know, leaves the Senate because he's probably not going to do too well. You know, filibustering the, the FDA bill and trying to get people to vote for them. But beyond that, Ooh, it doesn't change burn. it all that much, right? Well, let me put it one more point, though. I think from my view of trying to simplify things, does the 17th Amendment change the Senate's ability to check the House? I, the framers certainly thought it would. That's why they didn't have it. 
I'm not sure it did. I think it's I think states are a lot different than than districts. Well, maybe, but I mean, I think the the I mean the broader question that that we're 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 teeing up here is is the legislature stronger with a Senate that checks the House? I mean, it, and and more functional, or is it less functional? And whatever whatever theories were were presiding, you know, in, in 1787, also people thought that leeches were great for 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 a lot of uh, and bloodletting were were good cures for sickness, and we wouldn't want a you know an 18th century doctor operating on any of us now. Uh, but and, and lots of countries have unicameral legislatures. New Zealand, uh, for example, it seems to do just fine with a unicameral legislature. Yeah, I mean, I think to bring the executive back in, I think Lee's point about the fact that congressional dysfunctionality has empowered the executive in the modern era is an important one. And I think, again, this is where I would I disagree somewhat with your um, interpretation of the separation of powers in the Constitution, James, where I don't see I don't see it as protecting spheres of intrinsic authority. Right. I see the the branches and the different structure, the different pieces of the branches as as this is the sort of separated institutions sharing power view. Right. And that's where, as I said, the Senate actually performs this critical role of allowing there to be a Congress that can be co-equal with the president on these big, important national types of uh, of decisions. And that's not that's not separate spheres, right? That is an integrated power of making treaties or of, of appointments where the president has a role, but the Senate also has has a role. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, the way that our separation of powers works is by giving the the executive and the, and the legislative branches a, a share of each other's powers, right? You blend them. Right. It's not as strict, and the framers make this point over and over, it's not a strict separation because that by giving them a share of their other their rival branches power they then have the ability to defend their own kind of sphere of action if you will but, so i think that's right um but, but if you're going to have power you have to be able to use that power i mean the house has a lot of power that dries and shrivels up in the senate well but let's look at this i mean the idea the senate's job is to check the house and then also to pass legislation. I left that point out, right? That's that's the whole. What point. the what? And so <laughs> what it's a, it's word a, you're saying? it's a twin kind of role that it has here. And if you look at uni, unicameral legislatures, I think both at the time of the founding and today, the simple fact is if we have a unicameral legislature, I don't think we have as powerful a Congress as we do now. America is so? different than New Zealand. I mean, it, Madison tells us this in Federalist Ten. Look at the look at New the Zealand didn't even exist then. Look, there you go. Look at the extent. I've never been to New Zealand. I would love to. Maybe we should film uh, or film. We should film our podcast, the movie there, or you know, Lord <laughs> I'm of the Rings style. I'm all about politics and question the movie and or New just record an episode in New Zealand. I'll do that. Auckland as well. edition. <laughs> the um, <laughs> this is out of control. Guess we're out of control. But. It's America is a bigger country. It's got more people. And I suspect it has a much more diverse array of interests. And for those that all to work under the same roof, if you will, you have to have a bicameral legislature, I think. Well, that's, that's well, well what, what interests are, are represented in the Senate today that are not represented in the House? It's not what interests are represented or not represented. It's the idea of how can you get a state like, say, Rhode Island, to agree to strengthen a congressional body that has jurisdiction and power over it when it is not equal to and its interest will be overwhelmed by, say, a state like California or Texas 
but or what? Illinois. And it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. So the only way for this to happen is to have some sort of faith that Congress itself and the exercising of its powers isn't going to run over the parchment barriers, if you will, um, as Madison calls them in Federalist 51, that you erect to kind of restrain them. I think most Rhode Islanders, which is a very democratic state, would be happy to get rid of the Senate if it meant that Democrats had more control over Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the I think it's important. And Vermonters to, too. But that, but, but wait, to wait, be wait, fair, wait, let Julia finish. But that doesn't necessarily change the underlying accuracy of my observation, which is that they may very quickly change their tune if the national population, as expressed in the House, quickly decides that it wants to do things that they view as a detriment to their interest. I think that I think we also would agree that they would very quickly say, "Whoa, we don't like that." No, I mean, that all makes good sense. It's just counterfactual and hard to prove. And the federal, the you know, empowering of the federal government ship sailed in the New Deal, right? Um, I would say it sailed in 1787 as well. I mean, that's the whole basis of the Constitution. We forget this. That's It was designed to empower the yeah. government vis-a-vis what they had at the time. But but what you're well, we saying still... is versus the the federal versus the, the, the states, right? Yeah. I mean, that's when power shifted from, from being state-based to national-based. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what the theoretical point is here. This is pretty well-trodden Senate <clears throat> obstruction territory, but I don't think we can talk about the 20th century Senate without talking about anti-lynching legislation and civil rights. And you also, I don't think you're going to talk about the New Deal and the sort of extended New Deal policies, including leading up into civil rights, without talking about the role that Southern senators played in making sure African Americans were not included in in some of those, you know, New Deal and then later JFK policies. I, I think that's really, yeah. you know, again, I'm not sure what the theoretical point is there other than what we all know. No, I think I think that's fair. And the, the Civil Rights Act of 64 is a great example, um, I think, of, of my argument, which is that the Senate's not necessarily the problem over the long term, certainly in the short term. And there are very horrific examples of things that have happened because the Senate has been unable to act, say, and to outlaw lynching, if you will. I think, you know, and that that it, you know, it is what it is and it doesn't undermine the or dilute the the importance of the suffering that happens as a result of that. However, I also think that the Civil Rights Act of 64 demonstrates to us that it doesn't, the Senate doesn't necessarily impede action over the long term, which again is the whole point, right? And what happened in 64? You had Southerners lose because they were acting and the Senate acted, the House acted, and then the Senate acted. And it took a long time and there was a lot of arguments, but I would submit to you because of the nature of that debate, you have Richard Russell on the floor saying at the end of it, we lost. I urge my my fellow Southerners, my fellow Georgians to uphold this law. It is the law of the land now versus if the Senate did not exist and you had a house in, say, 1948, just say, well, you know what? The desegregation, all this stuff, 64 Act, that's the law of the land. My guess is it wouldn't have been received as well and it wouldn't have been received and it wouldn't have been as successful and it would ultimately have required some sort of force behind it to implement it. And that doesn't excuse the 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 suffering that people experience between that time and until 64 and even afterwards and even to this day. But it but the Senate is designed to help to reconcile Americans to what Congress does. I'm not, I'm not and sure, I'm not sure that it, do, it I'm not sure that it stops things. And if you think about executive power today, I don't think bicameralism is the, is the reason why we have a strong executive. 
I think by the reason why we have a strong executive is because neither chamber seems to be particularly interested in acting. And and I, how many times do we have the House acting and the Senate acting and then nothing in this kind of stalemate? I mean, do we have anything we can name that that is the reason why? Well, a lot of stuff is goes. I mean, the Senate is where legislation goes to die, right? And uh, I mean, there are a number of reasons why a lot of stuff is kept off the agenda in the Senate. But I think you'd see Congress acting a lot more if we had a unicameral. But who system. keeps it off the agenda? Mitch McConnell. How does he do that? Because he by what power? The power that that his 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 fellow Republicans grant him. Why do not uh, senators representing populous states in places like California challenge that power? They certainly can. Uh, it seems to me that 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 senators in all states do the exact same thing, which is sit on their hands and blame each other and defer to the executive. And so I'm not sure that the Senate institutionally is the problem. It seems to me that if, if you want to correct this problem, if you want to have more things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we need more senators who want to be senators. Well, maybe we need we the need, Senate to work. Maybe back to let's tie it back to Julia's proposal. Maybe what we need is more senators. More senators. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure if that actually addresses that that particular problem. I mean, I'm generally with you on this this point, James, that the problems are, you know, often attributed to institutions and institutions can amplify certain social divisions or whatever by in certain ways, but that usually the problem is the problem. Um, and I think you're right that the, the problem is, is this sort of absence of commitment to governance that is, I think, traceable to a variety of factors. Um, but I think we should move on and and talk about solutions. So, Lee, since you're the, you're usually our resident reformer, why don't you get us started? All right. Well, here's my idea for what to do about the the Senate and I think we'd actually be having a lot fewer conversations about abolishing the Senate because fundamentally the criticism is about the partisan bias. So, uh, liberal billionaires, if you're out there listening, here's my plan. It requires you to act. Uh, North and fund our podcast. And fund our podcast <laughs> while you're at it. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Alaska are all small, populous states that uh, that are that are red. But if you sent a bunch of of uh, of hipsters and created some universities there, you might turn them blue, and then we'd stop arguing about the uh, Senate disproportionality, and liberals would stop calling to. A, to abolish the Senate, and then we could just have have a uh, have a Senate that that represents the ma- the majority. So even out the population, essentially, yeah, is yeah, what you're saying. Exactly. I love this idea. But we can we don't have to change the institutions to to change how they what happens inside <laughs> them, right? If you want to change how the Senate operates, and you think you need more representatives, well, then get. Five hundred million dollars and buy up all the houses in North Dakota, or however much it costs. I mean, just, I don't know. just start a, you know, start and, a, start a new a new city outside of Bismarck. Bring a lot of people there, and then all of a sudden you've got what the original the new Homestead Act. Maybe right. you know that that that's a great. I'm, I'm all for that. I'm all, right. all for that. I like it. This is that would this would be great for my property values in Wisconsin. Also, if we could be part of that. Um, so all for that. No, this is essentially I mean, the Kansas Nebraska thing, right? Yeah, exactly. No, this and, is... and, and and there won't be a civil war this time. Of right. course. Yeah. We're, yeah. This is we're gonna we're having a sequel is gonna be different. This will be more like right. the Republicans creating the state of Nevada in the the eighteen seventies and a bunch of and splitting the Dakotas into or something. Oh yeah, that would be the other thing 
you know, DC and Puerto Rico, right? And so yeah, we have, I mean, we have that. We have Julia's plan. Yeah. So my plan, which I think actually works pretty well with the logic of what you're articulating here, James, which is that what what this is ultimately about again goes back to this point about representation and this sort of scheduled representation of of particular geographical localities and how we get people to sign onto the legitimacy of the federal government is to say, look, we have this dedicated stake, and even if we didn't win, we were part of the fight. I'm not a hundred percent sure I agree with your reading of the south after the 64 act but not, i but not i sure. see you mean the, you mean you don't think the, they they accepted it oh <laughs> uh, i see the the logic of the general thing and i think that that would probably also work if you gave that kind of representation to urban areas i do think obviously you would have to think very carefully about how you measured which um which of these urban areas would get that representation? Would it be dynamic and have a sort of reapportionment element the way that the house does? Or would it be like the top 50 in this year and then have that freeze, which I think it would be weird, problematic, but could see that happening. Um, but I do think that that would be, if we're talking about buy-in, right, it, it addresses, it addresses those issues and just sort of updates them for the distribution of population as it is in the 21st century, as opposed to Lee, who has this idea that we are, what we're going to do is we're going to radically reform society from the top. Jim Scott is is waving to us from the corner, seeing like a state, what could go wrong? With well, I'm, I'm not saying social <laughs> engineering. I'm well, just trying I'm, to upset I'm, you. I'm just saying move. Seating. There's a lot of people do who are complaining <laughs> about housing values in Brooklyn. You know, they right? Could, no, well, I. They, why not? Bismarck is is lovely, especially yeah. as as we get climate change. I mean, though, that's a great investment to buy property I'm, cheap there. I'm telling you, come on, come on up to the Upper Midwest. It's very nice. It is. As I think about Senate reforms and. I'm intrigued by both of these ideas. My, and especially yours, Julia, there's a, it has a lot in common with some of the proposals in the constitutional convention of her, like kind of creating these kind of larger districts uh, that encompass several states and having mm -hmm. senators kind of represent them in theory, at least I think it's similar. But my ultimate and overriding concern, both with regard to tinkering with the Senate in terms of its rules and the filibuster, things like that, as well as kind of broader institutional reforms is whether or not they will spur senators to act. Because ultimately, it seems to me that the problem is senators aren't acting. And if the way, and that means that to fix the Senate, we ultimately need to get senators inside the Senate who will actually want to be there and actually try to win. And it seems to me right now, the problem is that no one wants to win inside the Senate. In fact, we don't need to abolish the Senate because we already have. It's like an afterthought. It seems to me that no one really cares about the place when they serve there. They always think about things elsewhere. And so I, I think I've made a pretty persuasive case. I think you both agree with me. I don't think you need to say anything now. I think you well, think maybe. that the Senate is is a fabulous institution <laughs> and that I am one of the most intelligent people you've ever heard. Maybe they should just, if they're not going to act, they should just abdicate their, their role and just, you know. Run for president? Just run for president. Well, that's what they seem to be doing. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question, a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute. Our producers today were Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. And the theme music is composed by yours truly.